Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Dr. Jerry Hendricks, a retired United States Navy captain who is now with the Sagamore Institute. He also heads the, the Hendricks and Associates Consultancy and is a first order navalist whose fountain pen is in the museum at the United States Naval Academy uh, in the finest spirit of navalist writers. Uh, he is the author of the recent piece in the National Review, The Navy's Littoral Hubris, uh, detailing why uh, the Navy's littoral combat ship program uh, has effectively failed. Um, that has gotten comment from former Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work, uh, and uh, the latest contribution to that is by another navalist in front of this program, uh, retired United States Navy Commander Brian McGrath, uh, who then weighed, weighed in on this. So, Jerry, you succeeded in sparking a great debate, as you always do. Thanks so very much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Vago, and thanks for inviting me to come on and talk about this topic. Uh, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. Uh, you and I have spent hundreds of hours <laughs> over the years actually discussing uh, this topic. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence, and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Jerry, uh, you know, great piece looking at, uh, you know, uh, lessons and, and certainly what happened uh, in the case of the littoral combat ship program. And for anybody uh, who is listening to this who doesn't understand, this program was born some two decades ago uh, to um, dissimilar classes uh, of light warship with mission modules uh, that were supposed to be very, very fast, uh, very agile, uh, and, and give presence to the United States Navy worldwide, but also be multi-mission in that modules could be changed for anti-surface warfare, anti-submarine warfare, and anti-mine warfare. And indeed, the Navy put quite a lot of its eggs in this basket, was looking at new forms of crewing. Now the Navy is uh, in an accelerated, uh, is aggressively going to retire these ships, um, making the case, you know, well, the mission modules aren't completely ready. Uh, the steel-hulled Freedom-class ships uh, suffer from gearbox problems, as if those gearbox problems can't be fixed, by the way. And uh, the aluminum-hulled trimarans, uh, you know, suffer from cracking, and, and somehow those, those can't be used. F from your standpoint, what is the cautionary tale from LCS, uh, and, and what lessons should be drawn? Because the Navy among the services has historically been the most adept at driving change. In fact, tectonic change with startling speed. And yet, as we go into data questions, unmanned questions, the Navy is still struggling with a small surface combatant, right? Walk us through your rationale and reasoning here. Well, the, the one thing that uh, when, when I was asked, uh, and this was actually interesting because uh, the editors at National Review asked me if I would write an essay about LCS and, and why uh, the Navy seemed to be so intent on decommissioning so many of these relatively new ships. Uh, it wasn't exactly a topic that I wanted to take on um, because I've written on this several times. It's a frustrating topic. And what more could I say that I had already uh, not already said before? 
but when I when I started to write this, I realized I needed to step back and, and lay a, a foundation, which was the underlying assumptions that went into not only LCS, but sort of that entire uh, 21st century family of ships concept, starting with the Ford class at the top, and then you're going to have CGX, and then there was DDG 1000 or DDGX at that point in time. Uh, and then LCS was part of this family of ships. And I went into kind of these assumptions that somehow after the Cold War and then after Desert Storm and was off with us operating in the Adriatic in the Northern Arabian Gulf uh, or in the Arabian Gulf uh, for such a prolonged period of time that we would continue to operate these. We would be in a littoral environment. And since we sort of made in a strategic assumption, we were going to bend the fleet towards operating in these nearshore environments. Um, and, and so all three of those ships that virtually emerged, the Ford and then the Zumwalt and then the Zumwalt land attack destroyer. And then, of course, LCS was all bent uh, on this idea. So there was a, a strategic assumption that did not hold up well. And I've said this elsewhere, but, you know, we zigged and the world zagged and suddenly we found ourselves sitting with these platforms. Then there was also uh, another aspect, which was the technological hubris, the idea that we could press the I believe button on so many new advanced technologies and move forward across a broad front um, uh, in parallel. And I know that there would be uh, a lot of people would point out that with the Ford, you know, it was actually Rumsfeld who made the decision to kind of go all in with four major new systems on the Ford. Uh, the Zumwalt also, you know, there was an investment in, um, in a very strong, uh, you know, electrical package in anticipation of the chance of an electromagnetic railgun, and then with LCS that we could bring about these mission modules and that they would all come together uh, and be available as the ships rolled out. Really, that sort of I believe uh, in technology, um, you know, was a marked departure from the Navy's previous precedent of sort of build a little, test a little before you build a lot. Uh, that we did with the Aegis systems, or even what we did you know, when we went all in on guided missiles with the Polaris system in the 1950s, where we did a lot of testing, a lot of development before we sort of moved ahead with the George Washington class. But we did that in a fairly rapid period of time. So really, this was a series of, of, uh, of assumptions uh, and beliefs that just did not pan out. Uh, when it came to Polaris, um, the United States Navy had just launched USS Nautilus. And, and to those people who are not navalists in this audience, this matters because this is about getting the Navy right for the, for the future, right? And this sense that the Navy is on such a bad track that Congress has basically taken authority, as has the Office of Secretary of Defense has taken uh, authority over the Navy's long-range uh, shipbuilding plans. So this, this applies to the ability of the nation to do joint war fighting effectively, uh, especially in the Western Pacific, uh, where the Navy's role is going to be critical, as is the United States Air Forces. Uh, and indeed, a sense that the Air Force is sort of getting it right, and, and the Navy is sort of chronically not getting it right. The, the Navy has was able to, you know, the Nautilus had just been launched in 1955, first nuclear attacks, uh, nuclear-powered uh, ship, uh, and first uh, nuclear-powered submarine. And in May 1960, the Navy made its first deterrent patrol, and it did it in five years. It developed a new warhead, a new missile, a new guidance system, a new con concept of operations, uh, as, as well as a teardrop hull, cut it in half, put a missile section in it, and turned it into an operational fleet unit. No muss, no fuss. Um, I would argue that that wasn't test a little. This was LCS is a 20-year train wreck. 
that brought us here. So, so I, 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 let me, let what, me is it a cultural issue? Is it a leadership yeah. issue? So, what, so first what brought of all, us to calamity? Yeah. So we're going to, because I, I have to do a correction to you about the, the 1950s example there, because you have to remember, um, you know, the civilian leadership and uh, both in OSD level and then the secretary of the Navy level in the 1950s had to do a wholesale uh, removal of the leadership team of the uniform Navy. Mick Carney was fired after two years. Arleigh Burke was elevated from a two-star to four-star rank. We completely swapped out all of the bureau chiefs in an 18-month period of time in order to get to a leadership team that would go leveraging what had already began under the Truman administration. Nautilus was already in development when the Eisenhower administration came in in order to accelerate both with the development of nuclear-powered vessels, which Carney and his team were not interested in, uh, and also uh, guided missiles, which again, Carney was not interested in. We had to bring in the new team. And so that ability to kind of learn as you go and do a rapid organizational change and cultural change was something that worked because there was strong civilian leadership, something that I think has been missing from the Department of the Navy over the last two decades and that we see. I mean, essentially, the Navy was kind of on sort of an unguided autopilot uh, beginning from the late 1990s through the present day. Uh, and it's been that autopilot or the lack of strong strategic leadership that's invited the Congress at present to step back in, as it has done historically in the past, uh, to guide the Navy when the executive branch does not. So that's, I think, what we're seeing now is after two decades of sort of an aimless drifting, the Congress has grown frustrated and has begun to step back in and try to, uh, to guide the Navy from Capitol Hill, vice within the Pentagon. And that really is a sign to the degree that the Navy's culture, as well as its vision of its future, is really um, you know, in trouble right now, is when you see the Congress step in. That's when we've seen it historically in the past, it has been when the Navy doesn't have a strong vision of its own future and thus invites congressional uh, oversight and direction. At the time, there were many voices telling the United States Navy that it should be less focused on what's happening in the Persian Gulf and much more focused on what should be happening with China. Uh, the Ford program has ended up working, even though it was very, very difficult, and the technologies are proving themselves out. Uh, and I think that by all accounts, everybody understands this is going to be uh, a very, very impressive ship, assuming we can get an air wing befitting of it. I don't want to necessarily open up that uh, because you and I find ourselves in agreement about the importance of long-range uh, unmanned air power from uh, carrier decks. But talk to us a little bit now at this inflection point, Jerry, of what has to happen to rebuild confidence, to, um, to, to get a plan, uh, and how the Navy uh, sells it, because this was arguably not just the $25 billion screw-up, or $30 billion screw up, but much, much bigger screw up than that in terms of the cost of mission modules, training crews, disruption, lost opportunity costs at a time when the, when the, when the Navy you know, is pretty much going to Congress and say, look, give me a blank check. I got to build a lot of ships and you got to trust me. People aren't trusting the Navy. What are the specific things that have to happen to get us to that trust point? Um, given the Navy has a lot of other complicated things it has to do that go beyond just building ships, right? I mean, that's in its wheelhouse that should be easy. There are a lot harder things that we have to get to. And if you can't get the ships right, you can't get to data, you can't get to artificial intelligence, much less autonomous operations. A great question. And it's a very broad question. So in many ways, we have to sort of 
both begin at the top and at the bottom. Uh, the Navy has lacked a strong strategic vision for its future and the environments in which it's going to be operated, operating. Um, you know, one of one of my bosses actually in the past, uh, you know, wrote quite a bit about the rise of the Chinese threat, even in the 1990s. Um, Andrew Marshall in that assessment was talking about that, and that didn't get traction. And so we need to have a firm grasp of where the Navy is going to be in five years, 10 years, and even 20 years. So we need to be able to hold those three pictures in our head and begin building the fleet um, or maintaining the fleet for each of those threats. And so that gives you a near-term near and a long-term challenge. So the near-term challenge is actually getting into maintenance of the existing fleet because nothing changes rapidly in the United States Navy. So you have to have an ability to maintain the fleet that you have, maintain those numbers, look at your deployment patterns in an effort to deter rising great power competitors, be it China or Russia, at least in the maritime environment. Uh, so we need to get our minds around maintenance. Right now, a lot of our submarines are sidelined because there's just not sufficient maintenance capacity uh, within the, uh, the four major yards, as well as within the, uh, the, the civilian shipbuilding repair base or ship repair base. So we need to look at that in the near term. Then we have to come up with a plan to sort of address the long-term threat, um, looking at what the world will look like in 20 years, which is what we got dramatically wrong in the 1990s. You know, what type of fleet do we need? You know, the one thing that I'm really focused on is having a fleet that can meet the high-end wartime threat, the war, you know, what's my war-winning capacity, uh, which I think is increasingly moving towards submarines. And then what is my low-end peacetime presence threat? And, you know, how many of those platforms, what type of platforms? That's why I have a lot of interest in, um, in the frigate, as well as some of the uh, unmanned uh, surface vessels and unmanned underwater vessels. I think both those things fill in in that future fleet. And we need to have sort of a cycle of experimentation and prototyping and development that we can move forward with, with sort of that near-term and that long-term, um, you know, uh, capability. Um, and then we, we have to have the fleet or the uh, leadership that sort of comes to grips with this. We seem to be focused largely on program management right now and largely on management of present programs. Uh, I have not been impressed with our ability to think forward at the senior level. And I'm, I'm talking both in uniform and then the civilians that have come in to really kind of look out there. I think that there, you know, there's a lot of people to come back and say, well, look, it's not the job of the Secretary of the Navy or the Chief of Naval Operations to think about strategy. Uh, under Title 10 and under the Goldwater-Nichols Act, they're here to sort of manage heads, beds, airplanes, and ships. Uh, and yet, you know, then who is the strategic leader of DOD? There's been no Secretary of Defense in recent decades has spent a lot of time focused on the Navy. And so if it's not uh, SecDef, it's not SecNav, you know, if you look back, when was the last time a president really uh, not only uh, trumpeted the Navy, but then sort of actively promoted it? And, you know, you got to go back in many ways to the Reagan administration and the reagan Lehman uh, partnership there. Uh, so we, we kind of have to have alignment of a lot of different uh, planets here in order to really get the Navy moving forward. And, and that's why I think it's so distressing is that uh, it's it's kind of hard from to see how a path to, from getting from where we are to where we need to go. Um, but in in fairness, uh, Jerry, right? Uh, John Lehman uh, lobbied the Navy leadership at the time, worked to win over Reagan, 
in a variety of means, whether he was a candidate or when he was president of the United States and keep him sold on the importance of the Navy. Uh, we were in the midst of a conflict where uh, especially what the submarine force was doing was something that was sort of self-evident and, and, and had a tendency of winning. Um, and I should point out on that side, the submariners are still doing well in terms of how they're managing or, or been planning their portfolio. But ultimately, is this a cultural problem for the United States Navy? That it, because it's self-evident that the chief of the service and that the service secretary are integral to whatever long-term vision of the force exists, as well as driving culture change within that force. If you look at what Jim McConville has been doing, it's a, it's a dozen-year effort to drive army culture change. Uh, if you look at what CQ Brown and indeed his predecessor, uh, Dave Goldfein was doing, was devolve authority to lower levels uh, in the force and prepare it. Uh, Dave Berger, uh, as the Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, uh, is, is driving culture uh, and saying that our culture transcends the equipment we use, right? We are Marines and successful because of our vision and the way we look at problems, not necessarily the gear we have, right? So it doesn't matter whether we have tubed artillery or tanks, um, is this a cultural problem in the United States Navy that transcends actually and is resulting in bad outcomes, bad outcomes, whether they're in programs, bad outcomes, whether it's in strategy, and indeed bad outcomes. You know, the Navy talks a lot about accountability, Jerry, and sacks a lot of people. And in this particular case, there appears to be no accountability with the service reaching for a reset button. I, I agree. So that it's especially that last point, um, you know, there seems to be no accountability. You know, if you, if you raise it, you know, with Navy leaders, oftentimes they'll say, well, well, you know, who do you want me to bring back, you know, on active duty from the late nineties, early two thousands, cause that's where these decisions, uh, you know, rest. Well, actually having an impolite conversation about your predecessors, I think would be a great beginning um, and maybe drive some of those voices to come out and explain themselves now in a public forum but we seem to be, you know, uh, our, our leadership seems to be risk adverse that way because they don't necessarily want to be critiqued by their uh, successors sometime in the future for decisions they made now. So there's been sort of a polite uh, gentleman's club agreement on this. Uh, that being said, your point about culture is, is, is extremely well taken. Uh, culture has to be driven by leadership. If you look at how the Navy was able to transform itself so dramatically in the 1950s, that was leadership stepping up and making a cultural as well as organization, as well as technological change. Right now, we seem to be captured by, uh, you know, sunk cost infrastructure that we have, you know, in the fleet. Uh, we are very comfortable right now with mature programs that we have underway. So, uh, you know, my, my friend uh, and colleague, Brian McGrath, just did a a, a nice essay at Commander Salamander's uh, web spot where uh, he talked about the fact that we have these great programs with the Burke and with the San Antonio class and that our strength is in sort of maintaining them and evolving them rather than pursuing revolutionary uh, ways of rebuilding the fleet. And yet the real question is, is that infrastructure, which was designed in the 1970s and fielded in the 1980s and 1990s, is it going to be sufficient to meet our demands in the 2030s, uh, at what point in time do you reach an inflection point that you actually have to change your fleet design? And I would use the example of integrating unmanned uh, air surface and subsurface platforms into fleet architecture in order to get at the future threat and be dominant in that future environment. 
Uh, yes, I think that we are com uh, compatible or ahead of the Chinese and the Russians right now, but they have narrowed the gap sufficiently and given sort of their rise and the investments they're making in their shipyards and ship design, it's very clear that they're catching up with us. So what are we doing to sort of find the next gear to move on? Uh, I think we need stronger leadership uh, who is actually uh, uh, recruited and selected based upon uh, a vision of the future and that that should be part of their task. Um, your point about Reagan and Lehman, I would just say that, you know, first of all, John Lehman spent all of 1977 through 1981 planning to become Secretary of the Navy, writing strategy documents within the political party that he was organized with, getting to know the candidates, including Reagan. And when it time came, he made it very clear the only job he wanted was Secretary of the Navy because it was the one he was prepared for, and he held out for that. He was aided in that by having a very close associate, his brother, who was on the National Security Council staff and was able to give him a back channel conversation that was going on in the White House that Reagan was open to. Um, you know, that type of thing doesn't happen by accident, but it also doesn't happen every day. And so the idea of having a lineup between the president, secretary of defense, secretary of the Navy and the chief of naval operations that's aggressive towards growing the Navy is sort of this alignment of planets that I talked about previously that we, we seem unable to achieve in order to really start moving forward with both modernizing and expanding the fleet. And I'm hopeful that somehow that miracle will occur uh, in the near future. Does, does, uh, but sometimes you need uh, tough love. Um, the Navy has effectively, um, all, all of these criticisms, comments, discussions were had, but once the LCS decision was made and, and the, you know, we heard from Bill Murs uh, at Seventh Fleet and a number of other leaders who say that the LCS, once it gets out there is actually useful. Again, one of the reasons why Bob Work was such an advocate of the program was that it will alleviate the burden on your high-end combatants to do all of the engagement partnership, cop on the beat, um, um, in a much more economical fashion. Now, we can agree that a ship optimized for 50 knots is not necessarily as economical at 12 knots, which is battle force speed. For everybody out there who thinks the Navy goes zooming around at full speed, the Navy spends most of its life around 12 knots sort of trundling along unless it actually has to do something, in which case you put the hammer down uh, and, and you move. But um, do, is this a tough love situation where the Navy actually has got to lose the budget authority, lose the money, get back in line, and, and then sort itself out before it can you know, to, to do some time in the penalty box. Yeah, I, I, I love that tough love analogy because yes, it is. And yes, it's analogous to things that we've seen in the past uh, when the Navy, you know, fell back, uh, essentially resting on its laurels and resting on existing infrastructure. And the Congress then stepped in and effectively either the uh, congressional committee or by blue ribbon commissions or otherwise stepped in to guide uh, the Navy going forward. And, and there was, you know, much gnashing of teeth uh, and frustration when that occurred, because, you know, why won't the Congress get out of the way and just let us do our job and get us the money? Uh, but the Congress, you know, after uh, uh, attempting to work with the Navy for the better part of a decade now, talking about growth and plans going forward, I think has is, is grown rightly frustrated with the Navy's lack of a response or sending it a realistic budget that, that shows how the, the fleet's going to grow. And so I think that's where we're looking at you know, this conversation about either the congressional committee structure or 
a separate commission looking at sort of the future of the Navy, its strategy and its force structure. It, it is a condition which the Navy has invited. Uh, I think it's open also that right now because of the great power competition with China, what's going on with Ukraine, what happened a year ago with Afghanistan um, and the threat towards Taiwan, all sort of coming together right now that the Pacific and the Navy are going to be front and center topics throughout the next, you know, 2024 presidential cycle. And regardless of which side you're on, there's going to be voices that step up to show leadership on this. You know, I've, I found leading voices on, on both sides of the aisle. I, you know, Elaine Luria has been a, a great champion uh, for the Navy on, uh, on, the, on the Democrat side of the political spectrum. And you've got leaders like uh, uh, Mike Gallagher uh, and even Jim Banks on the right side who have been talking about this. And you can find those on the Senate, too, uh, where there's been strong leaders on both sides of the aisle. That's why I think that there is a growing consensus about the importance of the Navy and the need for a solid vision for its future, both at strategic level as well as in the force structure going forward. So I think that the Navy is going to be front and center uh, going forward politically in this country in the, in the conversation uh, for some time to come. But I mean, if it's important, you put people in position. The United States Navy still does not have an assistant secretary of the Navy for research development and acquisition. And we are now at the 16 month mark of the administration, 17 month mark of the administration. What does that tell us at a fundamental level when well, a job as important as that is unfilled? Well, it's, it's not only unfilled, but the manner in which they are filling it with a person performing the duties of right now uh, as sort of a political football between, you know, competing uh, political camps within the, uh, within the Department of Defense, you know, really shows that, that that is a position. First of all, Secretary of the Navy was not filled for nearly a year of, of the administration. And then you're right, the undersecretary wasn't filled until after that. And now we still don't have an ASN RDNA. And so this really shows that it, it, at least it signals that the current administration is not serious about addressing the Navy and its growth. In fact, it suggests that the current administration is somewhat irritated with the entire conversation about the need to grow the Navy because its priorities lie elsewhere. Um, so, you know, it, the, the Biden administration has sent two budgets to Capitol Hill. Both have been dead on arrival with regard to the Navy and the Congress has stepped up twice to plus up that budget far in excess of what the Biden administration asked for. And so I think that again, sort of this lack of action, lack of seriousness on the part of the executive has invited this congressional uh, participation in the process. Is there a broader, and I mean this not disrespectfully, but in, in this, you know, the true spirit of constructive criticism, is there a broader flag ward room issue here at play? Because it seems as though you know, one of the greatest attributes of the Navy is that it is very distributed. The problem with the Navy is that nobody is in charge. And, and in the immortal words of uh, uh, a great American president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, uh, as you know, spent seven years in the job uh, as the Navy's number two, said the Navy's like a feather bed. The minute you stop applying pressure to it, it springs back to its original shape. Um, you know, is there a broader flag wardroom question here, whether there are just too many cooks in the kitchen, as opposed to the other services where somebody is actually in charge. Because it does not ever seem to me that 
the CNO is really much in charge of anything after the meeting breaks up, as is evidenced by what we see happen programmatically, what we're seeing happen strategically, what we see happen culturally. How do we tackle that issue? So it's a great question. I think that culturally, the Navy's leadership has evolved in, in a very negative way over uh, most of my professional life. Um, I, and and I, I say this, and, and this is a broad generalization, it's an oversimplification, and I'll, I'll just state that up front, but I use it because to be concise. First of all, I think that sort of the Rickover approach of looking at the Navy as a system, as a new plant is a system, and that we're going to put information in and we'll get data out the other end, uh, that somehow that it's all a systemic uh, uh, problem that needs to be managed followed up by sort of the growth of the Deming School of MBA approach to running the Navy in the 1990s has sort of resulted in this idea that we value management and administrative skills in our three and four star leaders rather than leadership, sort of a wartime leadership uh, role model. I think there are some leaders, uh, senior leaders in the Navy um, who, who are leaders, but many of them get moved forward to be a, a regional COCOM. Um, I think Lung Aquilino is a leader in many ways, um, but I also view that the people that we've been selecting to be the chief of naval operations have been largely managers and administrators. We need to have a leadership mentality back in that, a champion for the Navy, uh, someone who wants to lead the Navy in new direction, has a large personality, and is willing to sit in the room um, with the chief of staff of the Air Force, who is a leader, um, who can sit there and look across the table at Dave Berger, who is a leader, and sort of share and compete in the world of visions um, and, and talk about the future of the Navy in much the same way as those two guys, uh, General Brown, General Berger, uh, are able to talk about their visions of the future of their own services. I don't think that we've had that. Uh, we don't have that now, and I don't think we've had that in recent years. Um, and and you know, I, I, so I think that we have to get back to that. I think we got to go back to something which happened, like I, we mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation to the Eisenhower administration, when they, they sort of moved uh, you know, uh, our chief of naval operations out after two years, brought in Arlie Burke, elevated him at, from a relatively junior rank, and then left him there for six years to right. cement in the reforms and changes. So you find yourself a wartime leader you know, who could lead a, a bunch of destroyers at the Battle of Cape St. George. You bring that guy in and you say, okay, here's the vision. We agree upon this. Go. And then you let him lead. Uh, with strong secretarial backing and partnership. Right. So that's, that's my hope. Um, I've, I've done some thinking and writing about that. I hope to do more, uh, but that's where I think that we need to go. Uh, and Dave Oliver in his new book actually details, uh, or at least I believe that Dave is going to be detailing some of that history as well, uh, sort of the post-World uh, War II history of the United States Navy leadership and OSD uh, for, uh, for lessons. Look, I think it's imperative and that you can be aggressive and do the blocking and tackling uh, on a daily basis. Everybody else is, is able to do that. Just very, very quickly uh, to, to wrap up, you know, there are folks who are looking at um, and fear that the Navy's bad habits will uh, also pollute the Constellation program, right? The Navy bought an off-the-shelf ship in order to be able to put it into service really quickly and uh, has decided to systemically almost redesign that ship, delaying steel cutting um, and increasing costs uh, in, in the process. Um, we're already looking at a next-generation destroyer. Uh, while the Navy 
prosecutes flight three and folks are looking at this and saying, well, wait a minute, why are we doing flight three? Because even at the time we were doing the flight three, the latest version of the Arleigh Burke or, or the ultimate iteration of the Arleigh Burke with the new radar, um, you know, you're kind of out of power on that ship anyway, almost, right? What, what are some lessons here as the Navy goes to its next surface ship programs and how to get them right? And Jerry, the Navy used to get it right and at least get it right and get it fast. In this case, we're sort of getting it wrong, wasting a lot of money, and it's slow, right? What do we, what do we need to do and what do we need to learn from that dynamic? And then a, a last uh, quick question on autonomy uh, as well. Okay, so let's just take that sort of in quick, rapid order. I'm very concerned about where we're going with the, uh, the Constellation class frigate in that we bought a mature design and we seem to want to keep fiddling with it um, in, um, in, in order to add missions uh, and systems on it. So we're eating up the margin and the space that we, that we bought that basic design for that was going to last you know, for a 25 year evolution of life. And we're, we're starting to mess with those margins now and seeing you know, potential for cost growth. So this is supposed to be a platform that comes in, inflation, you know, adjusted for inflation about 950 million. It's supposed to be a sub billion dollar platform so we can buy it in numbers. But if the Navy and Nav Naval Sea Systems Command keeps adjusting its basic design, then suddenly you might find this thing, uh, cost growth growing to 1.2 or 1.4. And then all of a sudden we'll have an argument, well, why don't we just keep building Burks or why don't we just punt on this and get ourselves onto DDGX? I'm, I'm afraid that that might be part of the conversation when in fact, we really need a frigate back in the force. There are frigate missions that, that we need to honor that we haven't been doing and we need to get back to uh, ports that we don't regularly visit and we need to buy these ships in enough numbers that we can be out and about as the cop on the beat. DDGX, I share a similar concern there about what the power margin or space margin is that's left in the Burke class hull. Um, but before we have a conversation about going on to DDGX from the Flight 3 Burke, I think we have to have a conversation about what is the role of the surface force in a high-end fight in the future that we can imagine. Um, if that platform, whatever comes next, doesn't have enough power for directed energy to be able to defend a surface unit in, in a opposed A2AD environment, then I, I don't see the, the justification for it going forward. So we need to have an honest appraisal of that future environment that we're operating in uh, before we sort of make that long-term commitment. I really feel like the surface force is, much, is in much the same place as the aviation community is that wants to press ahead on NGAD, next generation air dominance fighter. At the same time, it's got F-35 Charlie in production right now. Um, right. And without really giving me a justification why I need another air dominance fighter, as opposed to getting to my next long range strike asset, which has been missing from the carrier deck, thus keeping the carrier relevant in this future environment. We seem to be sort of more interested in prolonging the community's as they are now, rather than evolving the communities to meet the threat that we see coming. And there's been enough voices out there that can see the threat that's coming that you ought to be see the Navy change, but it's not doing that. Uh, the cost of the constellation is going up, and I, I, I fear that it is actually going to be less effective than whatever the parent design was going to be, right? Uh, so we've sort of fiddled, 
capability off of it rather than fiddling capability uh, on onto it, uh, which uh, is uh, is a bit of, is a bit of a challenge and kind of kind of bracing uh, to consider. Uh, and and I was also going to add that it's less about NGAD and more not wanting F thirty five, right? It's whatever the you know in in the neuralgia that the service has uh, that that somehow the F thirty five is not not the right platform and indeed is an important platform for the Navy to get to that future capability and to better define it on autonomy, uh, Jerry. Right? These decisions are again whether on the surface force uh, being made by the service about its most important and most expensive platform at $15 billion each. Um, it's important to get it right. And the and and Huntington Ingalls Industries can make the most, Newport News Shipbuilding can build the most capable aircraft carrier. But if the Navy decides to equip it with a bunch of short range fighters, it's not really that useful. What has to happen here for the broader autonomy debate, right? Autonomy may not work for every circumstance, but there is a very, very important role that it can play in. And the Navy itself has demonstrated whether it's work in the 1960s, 70s, 80s in unmanned systems, then divorced itself of unmanned systems for some time, right? I mean, the Pioneer and a number of other aircraft uh, were used regularly by battleships as spotting aircraft and what have you. What, what, are, what has to change here in the autonomy thinking, the, the fundamental thinking of the Navy when it comes to autonomy? Because again, the Navy can get some of these cultural shifts right and do them quickly. And it seems like there are way too many hangups here. What are, what are the hangups we need to get beyond? And understanding that, that Elaine Luria is totally right, by the way, in some of her critiques about it. But at the same time, there's a lot of capability and a lot of benefit that the Navy can get from it, whether in the air, whether subsurface or whether on the surface. So there's, you know, you got to look at unmanned at all three levels. So, you know, Naval aviation seems to be adverse to having an unmanned combat aerial vehicle on the flight deck. They had one that was nearly uh, mature, uh, very close mature when it was doing prototyping the X-47B and they couldn't get away from it quickly enough and get to something that had lesser qualities, wanting to get to a tanker or getting to something that was more ISR rather than have something that filled a role of unmanned combat aerial vehicles, uh, which they traditionally believe should be a manned role. I know when Ray Mavis made the statement that F-35C would be the last manned fighter bought for the Navy, that there was a nearly, you know, um, a conniption at, uh, at the next tailhook convention about what that mean and the need to actually, you know, tamp that idea down and that we needed to get to the next manned fighter in, as opposed to an attack aircraft as quickly as possible just to solidify the future of manned aviation. So there's a real cultural resistance to unmanned aviation on the carrier deck Unmanned surface, I think, is a lot easier because you can see unmanned surface craft operating either as extended range sensors for manned ships or as additional banks of, of, of ordnance, sort of offloading some excess ordnance capacity onto an unmanned platform that then would supplement manned ships, but operating in a, in a networked environment. There is some criticism, and Elaine has been one of the voices there, that, hey, look, you know, we haven't really done the type of nug work we need to do. We haven't, for instance, run a, a diesel engine for a prolonged period of time without any uh, men on board to maintain it. Well, let's get at that now. Let's find a place and do that prototyping and experimentation. The one thing that I will say, and I'll be writing more about this, is let's do that perhaps in a place that's sort of a way for prying eyes. Uh, let's do some unmanned prototyping experimentation someplace 
that's not the Southern California operation area where everybody and their brother can show up and watch us uh, as what's been happening over the last couple of years. Unmanned underwater, I think, is one of the more challenging environments because of the difference in data transmission rates between air environments uh, and underwater environments. We all know how data slows down when you try to penetrate water. And so the idea of both receiving information and transmitting information to unmanned underwater platforms uh, is rife with challenges, but I think that there's some new technologies coming um, that, uh, that makes uh, that potentially more exciting and more doable. Uh, there's also some rules of engagement issues that we've already uh, experienced in dealing with what happens when the other guy shows up and wants to pull your unmanned uh, underwater platform out of the water. You know, what's the admiralty law on that? We need to get that solidified. But I think that we should be sort of all ahead go in both unmanned underwater uh, surface and air. I said not both, but all three. Uh, and that we need to really sort of get a set aside community. One of my concerns, and this goes cultural, is that we've nested a lot of unmanned platforms into manned platform communities which I believe have inhibited their mission growth as well as limited their budget investments uh, because they see them as competitors with manned platforms. I would like to see an unmanned program uh, section office ENCODE set up. I'd also like to see sort of an unmanned community set up that would be separate and distinct uh, that would sort of have a, a place where the horses can run free to really see how much we can do with unmanned platforms going forward uh, without um, restrictions being placed upon by existing traditional communities and their leaders. I should point out uh, that uh, the Cavus Ships podcast with our uh, contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, uh, discussed this and in fact visited Austell and that they're doing a lot of very good work on uh, autonomy uh, uh, down there. And it's and you have to think autonomy. It's not unmanned, yes. uh, as as Cervello always reminds us, right? I mean, it's, it is, you have to have a different kind of approach. I mean, the biggest problem, Jerry, is th- th- this is, it's like working out you're, you know, you have to do the work and the Navy doesn't seem to want to do the work. Um, you can use synthetic range environments. You can do v- visualization and virtualization to do some of this work. It's just not abundantly clear to me. And this is no disrespect to the folks who are out there who are doing it, that there is as much of an appetite and an interest for this, despite blueprints and a lot of, a lot, a lot of talk. Um, Pleasure having you on as always, Dr. Hendricks, uh, and uh, look forward to having you back on again uh, soon. Terrific, uh, terrific discussion and keep up the good work. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on to talk about the recent essay in National Review.